If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment this morning. Let's anchor this whole sermon in a verse of Scripture that we'll talk about later in greater detail. But this is so appropriate, beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is made known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. When we talk about a worldview impacting the way we view God, and the way that we view reality, anything apart from God's revolution of himself is, is just a baffling thing to think of, that we would even begin to consider a universe without the living God who has created the whole thing for us. God made us in a way that we might know him. It was his perfect intent that we know the living God. It is the privilege we have as his creation to know him. And it has a great relevance to the way that we view the world. As we start this morning, let's just briefly review, as we did last Sunday, the definition of a worldview so that we have a clear understanding of what it is. And I'm going to apologize for you, to you, by the way. I noticed this morning when we turned on the, uh, the computer and the projector, uh, it's getting weaker by the Sunday. Uh, the, uh, the image is not good. And so I'm going to tell you one thing right now. I'll give you the chance if you'd like to. If you want to move forward so that you can see the thing, uh, some of it will be clearer than others. And this is one visual which will be difficult to see. But if you'd like to move forward, I invite you to do so right now. You won't, it won't bother me one iota. But the term worldview refers to any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relation to God and the world. We talked about the ten disciplines that we're going to discuss, and this morning we discussed the first two of those, which are theology and uh, uh, Philosophy. Those are the two disciplines we're going to look at this morning to see how our worldview should impact them and what impact they might have on our worldview. It is important that you see the last thing we, we emphasize that conversely each discipline is value-laden with worldview implications. There's great implications about all these things as to how we see the world, how we view it. And so the key words are an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationship to the world. I'd like to just say that one thing is we talk about these ten disciplines over the next four Sundays after this. That this is like weaving a piece of cloth. And we're taking these ten disciplines 
especially anchored in the Word of God, and we're weaving them into one piece so that our worldview is essentially impacted by not only these disciplines, but these disciplines and our view of them, our thinking about them, are impacted by a biblical worldview. Let's talk about the next slide, which essentially addresses those categories. Remember the key words here is the question that theology, which is the study of the existence, nature, and attributes of God, answers the question, what about God? Is there a God? And if there is, what is he like? What does he require of me? Philosophy is the attempt to discover an explanation for the whole of existence or reality. And that is saying, what is reality? What's true? What can I believe? What can I base my worldview upon? And as a, as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, my worldview is basically described as theistic. I believe in a living God. The Webster's uh, New World, or New Collegiate Dictionary, defines theism as the belief in the existence of one God viewed as the creative source of man and the world who transcends, that he surpasses, he's far above, Yet he is imminent, he exists, and he's inherent. We can know him, we can see him. His works are all around us. You know, there's one thing I've marveled at in modern day science uh, is the Hubble telescope and what it has revealed of the heavens. The creative scope of God's creation is so much more than we could ever have imagined 30 years ago or 40 years ago. It is absolutely mind-boggling. And when you see God's creative work in the heavens, the touch of his hands in the universe, it is just more than you can begin to comprehend. How can man see that and deny the existence of a designer of the universe? If I marvel at how anybody could say, there is no God. And look at the universe as it's been revealed to us by uh, the Hubble telescope. On the other hand, as we have had a great knowledge of microbiology today and what that looks like and the minute things that we cannot even begin to see, uh, that even are beyond the capabilities practically of a, an electron microscope, when we look at the smallness of it and yet see the intelligence and design of it, how can man look at that and say anything except, yes, there is a creator? So he exists above and beyond the material world. And that's why it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, or actually in verse uh, 16, where he's referring to the fact that God has created all things, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or powers or authorities, he has created them and they've been created for him and by him. Let's look at then the biblical worldview as it relates to theology. This is a definition or a quote by Stephen Swartz, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Rhode Island. And he wrote several years ago, he says, Theism, the belief that God is, and atheism, the belief that God is not, are not simply two beliefs. They are two fundamental ways of seeing the whole of existence. The one, theism, sees existence as ultimately meaningful, as having a meaning beyond itself, and the other sees existence as having no meaning beyond itself. Think about the implications of that. 
for just a moment. That, that's the reality. I, I just marvel at how men could be atheistic to deny the existence of God. So how has God revealed himself to us? Because this is essential to the biblical worldview. And there are two means by which he has done so. The verse of scripture that we just read as we started this morning tells us that God created us in a way that we would know him. It is, in, it, it is inherent within us to have the privilege to know God. The general revelation, and that's what we're talking about, is God's communication through nature and conscience regarding his existence. That's the way God has made it possible for every man and woman to know that he is God, that he's the creator, that he's made it all. The general revelation refers to the means by which God reveals himself to mankind through the physical universe and his moral order. But there is a special revelation, and in, in, far beyond that, and this deals with God's more specific communication, that is through the Bible and Jesus Christ himself, about salvation and his nature. The story in Matthew 16 is clear. When he asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? And some said, well, the, some say you're Elijah. And some say that you're John the Baptist. And he asked them, who do you say I am? And Paul, or pardon me, Peter, answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied to him and said, blessed are you. Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He's the one who's revealed it. This is the way we can know God, because God intends for us to know him in this way, that we might say, you are the Christ, Jesus. You are the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, the one that God planned from the very beginning. You are that one. I believe in you. God enables us, through his special revelation, to know him in just that way. And this comes to us through the word, the Bible, that has been passed down by over 2,000 years through the centuries. And, and if you want to read a great book about the Bible and how we have come to receive it, I would recommend Josh McDowell's book, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That's called New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a, great and, it's a great book that gives you in great detail all the elements involved in why we can find the Bible to be trustworthy and true. What would it be like if God spoke in a divinely inspired way through his prophets and apostles and through Jesus Christ and through those who recorded his sayings in the Gospels? What would it be like if we could not rely upon that? If we could say, well, you know, that's not really, that's not really probably accurate. It's not true. God who created the universe, I would contend, that God who is almighty and all-powerful, who's all-wise and all-knowing, has the ability to protect the word, his word, that it has passed down to us through the ages, translated and transcribed by men of every kind and race imaginable, he is capable fully of protecting that word. 
to give us a document that today is trustworthy in every respect. Could we not believe it? For God has revealed himself, and it's told us not only about himself, but about his son. And we can have confidence in that. You know, there's another, another way that God is revealing himself in this day and age. And that is through visions and dreams. And that's happening in the Muslim world. There's a great DVD out there uh, that talks about this in great detail, how God has spoken to men and women and has revealed himself, and I'm talking about Jesus Christ. They saw him in their dreams and in their visions, and they knew that who, he, who he was. They knew he was Jesus. And what it drove them to was that they would further explore the truth revealed about him in his word. It always manifests itself in that way. If you have God working through you in his, with his Holy Spirit to reveal himself, truly you'll want to know him. And that's going to drive you to the word of God. So Christ's teachings and actions as revealed in the Bible provide the cornerstone for special revelation and a solid foundation for, create, for Christian theism what we believe about God. One of the slides back just a few minutes ago, and I forgot to mention this, the simple definition of theism is that we believe in the supernatural. The supernatural is revealed in the Word of God in every way imaginable. Is it not supernatural that Jesus arose from the dead conquering death? Is it not supernatural that he was born of a virgin? Is it not supernatural in every way that we can put our trust and faith and confidence and hope in him for salvation and sanctification? Of course it is. But it's God's doing, not ours. Let's talk about the divine inspiration, because the foundational belief for this whole thing rests with that verse of Scripture you'll find in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. All scripture. That's the most basic tenet, in a way, of our Christian faith. Because if we cannot believe that his word is divinely inspired, that it's just simply the recordings or ravings of men who had a great imagination, if it was just that, we are to be pitied among all people. God's word is divinely inspired. Hebrews goes on to say, in chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. It is dynamic. It is alive. Because it's God's word. It's able to divide the, the, the thoughts from our, the, actually the soul and spirit, and it's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's how great and mighty and powerful is God's word. Also, it is a divine source of revelation. I have another quote here from David Noble, who is a man who I've trusted a great deal in helping me understand the structure of understanding the times and developing a biblical worldview. The Bible, when you accept Scripture as the word of God, the teachings and events described in the Bible become the most important basis for understanding 
all reality. Without faith that the Bible is God's word, you are left adrift, forced to trust your own unfounded thought processes as the ultimate criteria for discerning truth. Think about what he's saying in that last sentence. You're left alone to trust your own thought processes to discern the word of truth. What a tragic end that would be. I, I, I don't know about you, but I think about myself. If I had to reason myself as to how I could find salvation, I would be in real trouble. I'm not capable. God, in his special revelation, has revealed this to me. That's the way that Peter was able to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. God has revealed himself to all who really earnestly desire and seek him. They will find him. That's the promise that he makes to us. And so this is the way we have to understand. It's not by any intellect that we bring ourselves to the point of salvation. If it were, how pathetic a situation that would be for some of us. I know I would have great difficulty I'm finding, in finding myself to reason myself to salvation. It is impossible. Therefore, the revel, what the special revelation tells us about God, and this next slide actually is a series of about... Uh, 150 sermons, if you want to really get down to it, it would be impossible in, a spirit, in this period of time to, uh, to talk about how God has revealed himself in the world in any great, through the word in any great detail. But the Bible, as you search it, you can know, you can find out for sure, you can discover out of your own that God is indeed knowable. We can know him. And we can know him through the word. We not only know of him by his creative work, he, we, know, we not only know him because of what he's done in our hearts to bring us to that knowledge, but we also know him because of what he's revealed about himself in the word. He's personable. God is in every way personable. The scriptures reveal a God who is loving, who's patient, who's long-suffering, as they say in the King, King James. He is the source of every blessing. He is full of grace and peace and mercy, and he pours out his loving kindness upon us day by day in every way. God is not only knowable, he's personable. He is the judge because he is righteous and holy. He judges sin, and we have a way by which we can be saved, even though we are sinners. Christ came and died for the ungodly. He is a redeemer. And in his redemption, it, this, if we just sum up these other points here that says he should, that his love is universal, that it's gracious, that it's sacrificial, that it's beneficial, John 3.16 says it all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth, the element that really wraps up that whole last point here, that the revelation about God tells us who he is. I told you that I would contrast these things, and the next slide does just this. It talks about the Islamic worldview, which, by the way, when you look at Islam with respect to theism, 
They believe that there is a God. His name is Allah. And Muhammad is his prophet. It is a Unitarian belief about God. Whereas what we believe as Orthodox Christians, trusting the word of God to be accurate and divinely inspired, we believe in a Trinitarian God. God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, if there's a blasphemy in Muslim belief, it is the fact that you would ever believe in a God who is three in one. They believe in a Unitarian God. That tells you a little bit about something about the Unitarian faith within Christianity. They don't believe in a triune God. Well, they can believe anything else imaginable, but they won't believe in a triune God. John Adams, one of the founders of our country, was Unitarian in every sense. You only have to read some of the documents, that, especially the letters that he exchanged with Thomas Jefferson, to understand that his, the, his view of theism was Unitarian. He did not believe in the Holy Spirit. He thought that that was just almost blasphemy that these Christians would talk about such a thing. But the fact is, Islam has five, or some people say, six pillars that uh, deliver that person to, uh, to eternal life through Allah. And those are the confession that uh, God is one, and his name is Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And also they have to pray five times a day facing Mecca. They have to... Uh, fast during Ramadan, they need to give 2.5% of all their income uh, to the poor. They need to make the pilgrimage to Mecca at least once during their lifetime if they are physically capable or if they can afford to do so. And lastly, this is the one that's come to our attention in our day and age and helping us understand the times. That's this thing of jihad, which is the struggle, the battle of the flesh against temptation and sin, but mostly it's interpreted in this day among the more radical elements of Islam as the battle against the enemies of their faith. And that means they've declared war on us. And that's why some of the things we're seeing in our society today is the evidence of that jihad philosophy or the tenet of their faith, the six pillars of Islam. That just gives you an example of how there is a worldview in Islam about theology. The next slide tells us there is also a worldview in secular humanism about theology. Yesterday I was reading and doing some research on the web, and it was interesting to, uh, to read a good chunk of the human, the human manifesto, the humanistic manifesto, a two that was done in 1973. The first one was signed in uh, 1933, the year in which Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany. And after the war, especially after the Holocaust, and after the millions that were killed by communism in Russia and Red China, just to name a couple of places, after that, the secular humanists believed and came to the conclusion that the the first manifesto was way too optimistic about man. As a matter of fact, if man needed some evidence of his wicked and wretched and evil condition, the 20th century is the perfect evidence of history. The most 
uh, probably the most abusive, murderous century in the history of mankind. When you think about it, from the beginning of World War I through the complete end of it to our time, but especially after World War II and Korea and Vietnam, and I don't mean just those wars that involved America, but wars that were worldwide and involved many other nations. People suffered and died at the hands of tyranny. The fact is, is that they realized that they needed to redefine their manifesto. And so they did so in 1973. They did again in 19, or pardon me, in the year 2000. It's interesting to note the three tenets here that are laid out in secular humanism about theology, of the way they view God. First of all, they're atheistic. They don't believe in the existence of a, of a supernatural God. Secondly, humanism can be, be defined as the belief that humanity is the highest of all beings and truth and knowledge rests in science and human reason. Now, that's a, that's, that's a statement in itself. The manifesto, as I had mentioned, lays out the, the secular humanist worldview. The central theme of the three is the elaboration of a philosophy and value system that does not include belief in God. I was going to mention a while ago that Manifesto One, in particular, was signed by a man by the name of John Dewey. You've heard of the Dewey Decimal System in the library? Dewey was a great contributor to the educational philosophy of our day and age. Matter of fact, he's looked upon as a guru, guru of our modern-day uh, educational system by many people. And Dewey was one of those original signers of, the, uh, of Manifesto One. The next one is a quote that I wanted to give you because it's written by a man by the name of John Dunphy. And in his quote we have here, and by the way, he's written this, I think, around the time of the second uh, humanistic manifesto, which was done in 1973. He says this, I'm convinced that the battle for mankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers that correctly perceive their role as proselytizers. That's a key statement. They're going to talk about their role as proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism, resplendent with the promise of a world in which the never-realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. Does this not tell you something about secular humanism? How utterly godless it is in every sense of the word. And the fact of the matter is, that's the religion. That's the state religion. We've talked about the separation of church and state. And the fact is, is that this has become our state religion. Secular humanism assails us on every side every day. And here you read that this was written in the 70s, by the way. John Dunphy saying basically that 
we're going to proselytize this religion in the classroom. And our public school system, basically, is one that's about as contending with the Word of God as it possibly could be. We've succeeded in our day and age, and understand the times. The day and age tells us we've taken God out of the classroom, out of the public square, in every sense of the word. Let's talk a moment about philosophy. Philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom, the search for a general understanding of values and reality by chiefly speculative rather than observational means. Speculative, speculative rather than observational means. Another definition says the branch of knowledge or academic study that is devoted to the systematic examination of basic concepts such as truth, existence, reality, causality, and freedom. Also, the Encarta Dictionary Online says it's a precept or a set of precepts, beliefs, principles, or aims that underlies someone's principle. Principles are their conduct, the way they live. There's a key idea about philosophy, if you will. And from a Christian standpoint, if there were to be a Christian statement that is clear about philosophy, I think you'll find it in John, just for a moment. Turn with me, if, if you will, in John chapter 1. This is a philosophical statement. It deals with man's existence. It deals with man's morals his laws, the way he lives and moves and has his being, because it explains much to us in a very philosophical way. It says in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're talking here logos, 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 and we'll explain that in just a moment. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, that we might know him. He was in the beginning. He transcends man. He was with God, and he was God. This is why we can believe and one God in three persons. So the testimony of our scripture, the word Trinity, as we mentioned before, is never found in scripture. But the concept of one God in three persons is found all through the scripture. The fact is, is that this can be explained as our philosophy. In the beginning, and by the way, what the Logos really means is that that's the mind, the reason, the thought, the wisdom, the intelligence, the idea, the law, the order, the purpose, and the design of God. In the original, in the original language, that concept in the Old Testament had to do with the concept of a powerful, creative word of God. In the beginning, God created in Genesis 1.1. And the Greek idea for organizing and Unifying the principle of the universe is found in the New Testament. That was the Greek philosophy about logos, which means literally translated word, the word, meaning God. And we could, we could go on for hours about 
all the ramifications of what this means, but the fact is, is that it is the single most important philosophical revelation, if you will, about God that we find in the Scripture. The Christian influence on philosophy is kind of, again, quoted by David Noble. Many who finally began to reflect on the deeper things of life, that ask the question, how did I get here? Why am I here? What am I doing? Or where am I going? Simply discover that Christianity answers these questions more completely than any other worldview. And those who earnestly seek truth will ultimately find themselves face-to-face with the God of the Bible. Think about that. Those who ultimately seek truth are going to find them, themselves face-to-face with the God of the Bible. It's interesting to read, as I was researching some of this, how indeed certain individuals, and I think it's CME showed, uh, had come to that knowledge of God after a lifetime, basically, of atheism. Because he kept pursuing truth. And his ultimate pursuit of truth finally convinced him in the existence of a God. What a, what a wonderful revelation it was. What a tragedy that it came at the very end of his life almost. But the fact is, he's not the only one that has come to that conclusion. Those people who earnestly seek to know the truth are eventually going to come face to face with the God of the Bible because their truth is revealed. Faith or reason. The natural man is no less certainly a man of faith than the spiritual man. But his faith is in the ultimacy of something other than the word of God. That is, the evolution of man is an example. The spiritual man is no less certainly a man of reason that the natural, uh, than the natural, and, but his reason, like that of every man, functions within the perspective of his faith. The, the key here is here. How can, how can we get to the point? How does... The knowledge we gain through faith in biblical revelation. How does it compare to the knowledge gained by the scientific investigation of the universe? The fact is, is that we'll learn much more, I believe, in every sense of the word, in the faith that comes through the Bible. You know, we can investigate and think about all the changing theories that has come about just in our lifetimes. All of us have been here for a period of time. The fact is, is that a lot of these theories have changed, and they're constantly in flux, changing every day. The only theory, if you will, because it's not a theory, it's the truth revealed in God's divinely inspired word, tells us that he is the creator. He has spoke these things into being. He has done it. And we can understand the cosmetology, if you will, of the universe through him. All methods of knowing ultimately rely on certain assumptions. And this next, this next slide tells us a little bit about those assumptions. The critical problem, and this is by Warren C. Young, who wrote The Christian Approach to Philosophy. He said, the critical problem is that some thinkers place their trust in a set of assumptions in their search for truth, while other thinkers place their trust in a quite different set of assumptions. So where are your assumptions to be? We don't have to assume anything. I think we can find as we get into God's word that it's trustworthy. That is the ultimate truth. It enables us 
to understand God as he's revealed himself. The God of the Bible has proven himself in every sense of the word to be trustworthy in every sense. What are our conclusions that we reach about Christian philosophy? To hold, many hold that the Christian view of philosophy is to be the most rational of all worldviews. When you get down to it, it's the most rational. It's probably one that's more easy to believe, not because it is simplified, not because it's easy believism, but because it's true. The Christian worldview on philosophy and the view of how or why we are here, what's reality to us, is a rational, reasonable explanation of what we are and what we face. The biblical worldview on philosophy requires no more faith than any other worldview or philosophy. And think about that as you understand, for instance, uh, secular humanism and Marxism's doctrine of spontaneous generation or creation. Not, not creation, they, won't, they, they wouldn't like that word at all. But as you understand their explanation of evolution. And as you get into it, it requires, I think, a lot more faith than Christian, the Christian view based on uh, the, the creation by God. It is just almost preposterous. As a matter of fact, I think that as, as scientists have began to really research and understand the doctrine, if you will, of evolution, it's become more implausible, more difficult to believe than ever before. As you look at the, the grand design of God's universe, as I mentioned when we started the sermon, how can we not believe that we have an all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God who created it? It takes more faith, I believe, to believe in evolution than it does in a Christian worldview. Let's look at the conclusion about Christian philosophy. I have another quote from David Noble. It's about, remember, theism, belief in the supernatural God, Supernaturalism is more than a philosophy in the narrow sense. Christian philosophy represents a worldview that is consistent with the Bible throughout. It embraces the meaningful, purposeful life, a life in which each of us shapes his or her beliefs according to a coherent, reasonable, truthful worldview. A person who holds such a worldview will not be tossed to and fro by every secular doctrine. As I mentioned a while ago, it seems like some of the theories change constantly. But the fact is that philosophy is really, in the simplest terms, the definition, a way of life. A way of life. Jesus came to us in John 14 and 6. He says, I am the truth, the way and the life. And no man can come to the Father except through me. This is what Jesus said. As C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, the ultimate test is this. We come to the conclusion that the claims of Christ found in the Scripture are either looked upon, is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Is he who he says he is? Is the Word of God what it claims to be, divinely inspired, living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Is it what it says it is? 
Or do we have to put our trust in something that we find on our own basic human reasoning? Let's talk just for a moment in closing about the secular humanist worldview and this philosophy. The philosophic worldview of secular humanism is one of naturalism or materialism. Reality is composed solely of matter and whatever exists can be explained by natural causes. Thus, in the humanist mind, the supernatural cannot exist. The God of the Bible, the God who created the universe, the God who gave miracles in the days of Christ and throughout the scripture, cannot exist. It can't be explained. Carl Sagan quoted in his book on the cosmos. He says, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Nature is but an endless series of efficient causes. She cannot create, but she eternally transforms. There is no beginning, and there will be no end. Well, that's how Mr. Sagan believed. And I would dare say maybe he sees things differently today. But nevertheless, let's look at the biblical worldview on philosophy. The fact is, is that as you look at Colossians 2.8, it tells us that we are to see to it that no one takes us captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the, to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Ephesians 5.6, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. It says in Romans 1.18 about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. It warns us in Colossians 2.23 about the appearance of wisdom in self-made religions. It talks to us in 1 Timothy 6.20 that we are to avoid the empty chatter and the opposing arguments of which could falsely be called knowledge. We are to ultimately seek the truth through God's word. This is why he has given it to us. This is why it's trustworthy. This is why we can rely with great confidence if we build a worldview on the revealed truth of God's word. What a difference it can make in our lives. How easy it is to be deceived in so many ways by man's grand eloquence about what his purpose is and what he's to do. And when you read the tenets of the secular humanist, uh, secular humanist in the Manifesto 2, Manifesto 3. They sound grand, but they are absent of God. There's no God in it. Their intent is to establish a religion. And this is important for us to understand. That's exactly what the Supreme Court has defined it as, a religion. And it is, in every sense of the word, it has the tenets of faith, if you will, the things that we believe uh, about and are feel sure about, the things that we feel like there's the proof of the reality of the things uh, that we cannot see, that is evident in the secular humanistic worldview. And what a tragedy it is when Christians get caught up in this and begin to even believe some of it and how it can taint and poison the truth of God if we allow it to. But if we seek God's truth with all of our heart, we'll find it. Because that's his promise to us. If we seek him, we'll find him. 
He does not hide from us. He does not try to make it so esoteric that only the initiated can believe in it. It does not require the philosophy and wisdom of the Gnostics in that first uh, couple of centuries of Christianity, which seeked to give man some kind of a mysterious way to understand God, and yet had completely perverted all the truths of the Bible, of the New Testament, of the New Testament writers, especially the Apostle Paul. So the fact remains that God is willing and has, I trust, in every heart here this morning, revealed himself. And he will help you understand what he wants you to understand in every way that is worthy of living, so that you might live and move and have your being in Christ Jesus. That your worldview might enable you to see things the way that God sees things. To understand the things that he understands that he has intended for us to understand from the ages, from the ages to begin. And that he in, intends for us to understand as we live our life day by day. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your divine revelation of yourself through your living word. We thank you that, Father, your word is trustworthy because, God, you are trustworthy. And that which you testify is true. If the testimony of man can be reliable, Father, the testimony of you, the living God, is even more reliable because it's found in all truth. Thank you, Father, for the revelation you've given us of Jesus Christ, your Son, who is our Savior and Lord. Thank you, Father, for your great mercy and loving kindness that you pour out upon us day by day to enable us to live and move and have our being in him, if but we just only seek you, Father, with all of our hearts. Thank you for the promise that if we do seek you, we will find you. For you are not a God of mystery. You are not a God who makes it difficult to know him. You are knowable in every way. You are a God of mercy and love. You love the world so much you gave your only son. Father, thank you for that pure, unbounding, glorious love in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you can give us the wisdom by which we need to live day by day. That we can anchor our philosophy, our way, if you will, upon Jesus Christ our Lord. That we can put our trust in you for everything. For Christ is sufficient in all things. Lord, as we give thanks, we praise you, and we bless the name of Jesus. For it is in his name that we come to the throne of grace. Amen.